1: It's really important if you are a nursing mom and your little one has eczema or whatever health conditions they have that we work through you to benefit the little one. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health-conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now onto the show.
0: All right, today on the Less Stress Life, we have a fun fun topic for us. We're going to talk about kids and eczema, which is a around 1 in 5 or 1 in 10. So I guarantee you know someone that you can share this episode with and turns out a lot of people don't talk about this. So I think it's going to be a great episode. So I've got Jennifer Brandt here, who's an integrative and clinical nutritionist with a master's degree in public health and nutrition, and she's a certified nutrition specialist. She specializes in childhood skin rashes that include eczema, psoriasis, tinea, versicolor, hives, acne, vitiligo, and others, food allergies and sensitivities, and gut issues. Jennifer's own struggle with gut problems and disordered eating and a family history of autoimmune conditions, including in her father's battle with psoriasis that turned into psoriatic arthritis. Her brother's diagnosis of psoriasis and her mother's of attilico, which is really like a crazy amount of skin stuff for Jennifer to not have skin stuff, really left her frustrated with conventional medicine. So she knows firsthand that a different approach is needed. So I'm excited to jump in. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. And so Jennifer, sometimes people ask me, well, how do you find these people? And so Jennifer is a friend of a friend. And so you might remember mm-hmm. Jen Fugo. She is the host of the healthy skin show. She went to school with Jennifer. And I mean, that's kind of the story. And then Jennifer and I were just talking off air how we both got started working with kids with skin issues, which is very accidental. I mean, oh. you were just asked <laughs> to, yes. if you would take, if you would take them. And I forgot to ask you if you have children of your own. I do not actually
1: have children of my own, which I think is one of the primary reasons why I enjoy working with this population (laughs) so much.
0: That's funny, because I feel like having children sometimes allows me to say like, hey, with my own kids, this works for them. And so I just I love it. I think Uh it's great. So let me set the stage a little bit. I mentioned this before, but there's a huge need for people to work with children in skin issues. And there's a giant gap in it being done. And maybe there's a reason for that, because it's not necessarily sometimes it's very straightforward. Sometimes it is not very simple. It just depends on the person. And I love that Jennifer really loves to work with kids to and under. And I had discovered, through trial and experiment that I like kids five and under. And why do we feel like that? Because it's easier to change and manipulate things when they don't know different, right? And we can kind of create like, and that's sort of when the microbiome gets established. Now for me, once you're over five, you have like a big opinion (laughs) about whether you're going to do things until kind of adulthood. So it's really interesting. So Something that I see a lot that Jen and I are going to dig into today and that she sees all the time as well is kind of how the family health and history is playing into like, why are some kids getting eczema and some kids are not? Right? What are the factors there? Whether they're in the research or not, because this is challenging for one. I mean, paying for it, research is one thing, but ethical, like ethical research. I mean, you have to have research approved. So it's not really very doable to have research on some of the stuff we're going to talk about. Well, we're definitely going to talk about clinical experience. So. I'll shut up and let Jennifer talk. Jennifer, tell (sighs) us a little bit about kind of how you got into skin issues, and how you picked how you decided that you loved working with two and under. And Mm -hmm. anything you want to say about that, and then we'll get into some of the nitty gritty.
1: Sure. Thank you. Well, as you mentioned, I just have always been fascinated with everything skin related just from growing up and whatnot. And then like you mentioned, my father was diagnosed with psoriasis at age six, it turned into psoriatic arthritis by the time he was in his 30s. And now he's in his 70s. He's always taken a conventional medicine approach. And I I have just watched him continue to deteriorate over the years, which of course is heartbreaking. And it really points to me how challenging it can be. Like you were mentioning, sometimes it's easier with little ones to implement interventions that are going to help them feel better. Whereas as adults, we are so deeply rooted in our habits, whether that's nutrition, lifestyle, what have you, that it makes it really challenging to change. So my father's struggle and, and battle with psoriatic arthritis as well. My mom has vitiligo and then my brother has psoriasis. So that always created really a need for me to help others that are struggling with these types of conditions. And then when I started my career as a clinical nutritionist, one of the first connections I made was with a local ENT office. I'm based in Los Angeles. And I started talking to kids and their families about, you know, what to eat after tonsillectomy. And so, you know, we're talking about these things with families. I started working with children, which really prompted me to start doing more research into how to apply functional medicine approaches to little ones. And then, generally Jennifer Fugo, who you mentioned, a colleague of both of ours, focuses on skin health and she does not see children. So she had asked me at one point if I felt comfortable seeing the children because she was getting a lot of requests for that. And I said, absolutely. So I started working with little ones and their families and helping them resolve imbalances that are causing their skin rashes as well. Of course, as you know, Krista, you work with a lot of skin issues as well, but these are often connected with allergies and gut problems. And so the base of my My client population are little ones. And then over time as well, they seem to be getting younger and younger. And so I started seeing a lot of little ones under two years old. And that really starts to beg the question, especially when these little ones are 100% breastfed what is happening? Like, what is getting in? that is causing the problem. And then this is where we start to take a deeper look at mom. And by no means, mom, is this your fault? So that's not where we're going with this. But what's important to understand and what I'm finding, and again, like you mentioned as well, there isn't a lot of research, there are not a lot of scientific published papers on this type of information. But as I'm digging to find out what's going on under the surface, you know, I start to find out that mom has her own skin concerns, her own gut concerns has autoimmunity. And these things have been left to fester over the years. And so it's absolutely the case that something happening with mom could be affecting baby. And so for these little ones that are less than two years old, you know, we look at mom and baby, but often I find that I'm focused more on mom. And again, especially if the case is that the little one is mostly or 100% breastfed.
0: I love that. And I love when someone comes in and they say, I would like to address my own health as well. Like I know I don't want my child to have eczema, but I think that I've got some stuff going on as well. And I would like to address that. And I'm like, jackpot, that is exactly the opinion and the mentality that's going to elevate you to the next level. And I haven't gotten to do as much side-by-side testing to like prove this. However, in the ones that I have done, where I've had baby or child do some testing, and then if I get to do the parent's what I have seen so far is significant. There's a lot of significant stuff going on with the microbiome. Sometimes the parents have more than the child. Sometimes the child, you'd be amazed at what's going on in your child's microbiome, kind of transiently even, which some stuff can come in and set up shop for a little bit, like set up a tent and then move on because you have a strong immune system. Some people don't have a strong immune. Like some children, they're not starting off with a very strong immune system or something attacks it or something assaults it is probably a better word because there's so many things that can happen. And so it can get a little suppressed and hopefully come back. But what I've seen is absolutely what you say. And two years ago, I went to a conference. I've had the opportunity to to see two lectures on this. And the first one, I went to a big kind of conventional nutrition conference and I was really excited to see a topic about like microbiome of breast milk, essentially. But what I took away from that was, oh, we're just starting the research in this area. We see that we're sharing microbiome and we basically have like not much to report. And they were doing it in like internationally. So Natty ran in the US and I'm like, thanks. That tells me <laughs> like not really much <laughs> more than what I knew. But, uh-huh. You know, I wish I've asked. So great, went to a great microbiome conference this fall and there was some super nerds there. In fact, some of their, their lectures are sprinkled in right around this one airing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got a similar answer, but if we were just to speak from clinical experience, I think we'd see that like we share microbiome and mm-hmm. it is not mom's fault, but guess what? I mean, we think that it's likely because people bring this up all the time. They're like, hey, could my child be getting XYZ things through breast milk? Maybe, maybe, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe through inoculation at birth, maybe mm-hmm. from what happened after birth. For example, when my second child was born, I was positive for group B strep and I was on 30 mm-hmm. hours of antibiotics because my children never want to come out. And <laughs> wow. I got to have a, a awesome rash for a month afterwards. And she definitely had a lot of microbiome issues that mm-hmm. presented as behavior stuff and whatnot. And so mm-hmm. my point is mm-hmm. that alone, when your inoculation is kind of through the birth canal. If you've been on that many hours of antibiotics, you've gone ahead and cleared out all the good flora regardless. And so you're not really getting good inoculation. So sorry to talk mm-hmm. so much. But no, um, awesome. but I just wanted to share just like, these are personal experiences or client experiences. They're not in the research. But yeah, right. mom's health is affecting baby's health. And I mean, you would know mm-hmm. that so well when you see when two and under exactly what you said, like, they can't be doing it. <laughs> you know, they right. can't, they, there's outside things that are going on. Absolutely.
1: And and I think those are such great points. And when we're talking about the gut microbiome, this is research, 70 to 80% of your immune system is located in your gut microbiome. So when you have imbalances in there, it absolutely can affect the rest of your immune system. And then of course, when we're talking about eczema, as well as allergies, you know, these are conditions that are sort of that immune system and haywire type thing. So gut is absolutely involved. You know, in infants during the first few weeks after life, they have a leakier gut, and then it starts to become more normalized and, and less leaky, assuming that something isn't triggering inflammation in there to keep it leaky. And then of course, when we're talking about breast milk, yes, they're actually anti endotoxin antibodies in breast milk. And so it can be really helpful to build the little one's gut microbiome. But if mom has something, so breast milk can be really protective against a lot of different endotoxins. It's protective against C. diff, for example. But things like H. pylori can get through, toxins from other bugs can get through. And you know, of course, any food type triggers or allergy type triggers can also potentially get through the breast milk into the gut of the little one when these little ones gut microbiome. So a little one gut microbiome isn't mature until about two to three years of age. And so during that time, This is when breastfeeding is prevalent and when we want to be breastfeeding. So lots of things can get in there that shouldn't be getting in there during this time. And something else that I find really interesting about the infant gut microbiome is that, and there isn't a lot of research on this, but they have higher relative abundance before age two or three. so when you're looking at a stool test like what you're seeing you have to know how to interpret this so like higher relative abundance we might see something similar in an adult or somebody you know over two to three years of age and think of that as a gut dysbiosis where in a little one that actually could be normal and so what we're looking for more so in stool testing for these really little ones less than two years of age are things that aren't supposed to be in there certainly not in high high levels, like overgrowth of H. pylori, or parasites, for example. And then we can also take a look and see how the gut immune system is functioning, if there are gluten antibodies in there, how digestion is working. So we do look at the stool test a little bit differently for little ones compared to a little bit older ones and older ones. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it is so fascinating, just the impact that I'm learning, just like you, right? You work with a family. So, you know, I might be working with a child, and then the mom comes on board as well and we do stool testing on both. And, you know, often I do see similar, like if mom has H. pylori, the little one might have H. pylori. It's really common to see that. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing that I'm looking for. And so then when we are looking to address this in the little one, we've got to address it in mom, especially Mm -hmm. if the little one is breastfed. And so this is really interesting. A case that I have, I'm actually just finishing up working with this family. So they had two little ones. One was a girl, she was about four years old, And the little one was still nursing. Both had eczema. The little girl, of course, you know, on her own protocol, don't need to worry about mom there too much. And we got great results really quickly, which is actually kind of unusual. We expect this to take six months to a year, sometimes longer. On occasion, I see things get better really fast. So this one happened to get better really quickly. However, the little one that was still nursing, mom had a lot of stuff going on. So she was on a protocol. She was working with another practitioner, actually. And she was on a very aggressive protocol protocol. And so I just kind of watched what was happening. So we did not put the little one on his own protocol. We had mom on her protocol watched what was happening in the little one, sure enough, as she started implementing like the antimicrobials and things like that, he started to have die off symptoms. So it's really important if you are a nursing mom, and your little one has eczema, or whatever health conditions they have, that we work through you to benefit the little one. And then of course, we're a Krista, we're already jumping to our scientific, like we're talking about the stool tests and the protocols and such. But we do always want to start with a food based approach. And, And I I always do tend to jump when we're having conversations like this to the stool tests and the protocols and the supplements because by the time people – come to me, they've already tried things like this. You know, they've already mm-hmm. tried diet. I know you do a lot of work in this area. They've tried taking everything out of the diet right, and spell work it, in this area,
0: right? Like you do, right? Like, yes. Yeah. not like restricting everything is not your answer.
1: <laughs> no, it's not the root cause of the problem. And I, I always tell people it's like, okay, if you've removed the common triggers for skin rashes, which are gluten, you know, processed foods, of course, mm-hmm. but so with processed foods, added sugar, gluten, dairy, eggs for a lot of people, if you've removed those common things, and nothing, is changing, that's when you need to take a deeper look. Um, And that's when we start to look at what's happening in the gut.
0: And even if those things are irritants, you can still look at what's happening in the gut. You know, there's definitely a possibility there because one of the possible factors here is like these might be difficult for that system to digest. Why? Is it the age? Is it digestive inadequacies? Which is a long story. I have several comments. Hopefully, I'll remember them. (laughs) First is I bet working with two and under could be challenging sometimes because stool consistency is going to change a lot. Well, especially one and under, right? My favorite, uh, like, wrench. And I'm being very facetious here is teething because it will change, (laughs) it will change what's going on (laughs) with the stool. But on that note, I also really like when kids have, when parents notice that bowel movements or there's some kind of digestive something along with the eczema, Mm -hmm. because then it's like, great. I don't have to tell you (laughs) that we need to look inside to see what's going on outside. So I think that is a great point. Um, Mm -hmm. next you mentioned that pylori can be. Kind of a side note, I'm super obsessed with pylori and how it like hides and then presents later in its prevalence of 30% in the United States, Mm -hmm. 70% in Mexico, I think 30% in Canada as well. I'm just really fascinated by the epidemiology of pylori. Have you found research showing that these toxins are transmitted via breast milk or are you going by clinically what you see in testing? I have seen research and I can tell you,
1: let me scroll and find the paper if I uh, had noted that.
0: Awesome. Love it. Yeah. Um, I, I
1: might have to get back you on that one. But yes, I have seen research papers that show, and it varies because I in looking for this information. I do see a lot of papers that say it's protective against H. pylori. This one study, it was done in a different country. And it showed that it was a possibility that the H. pylori was being transferred through breast milk, candida. So yeast can be transferred as well. Whereas C. diff, for example, breast milk is protective against C. diff. And then it isn't really clear. And I haven't been able to find the research that shows that other types of toxins can get through. For I did find some research, for example, parasites are too large to get through that the mammary blood barrier to get into the breast milk, but toxins from them can. Additionally, any toxins that mom might be harboring. So, you know, as we know, uh, toxins hide out in fat tissue. And so when we are producing milk, so when we are nursing, the energy stores for that are liberated from fat tissue in the body. So these toxins that might be harbored in mom's body can get into the milk as well and be transferred to
0: baby. Speaking of toxins, all of these pathogens let off their own toxins, typically. And you mentioned a word earlier. I want to give some definition to. You mentioned anti endotoxin antibodies. Essentially, an endotoxin it's a thing that compromises gut barrier and can go up when your body is insulted by something. Is there a way you want to say that differently? Like endotoxins increase, and when you eat mm-hmm. a bunch of crap, when you've got certain pathogens, we know that from research. Mm-hmm. And so breast milk is protective of the gut assault. Apparently, I really love the word assault today. Assault. Um, yeah. yeah. Assault. The assaults that happen. In yeah. America.
1: Yeah. So endotoxemia. So endotoxins, like you mentioned, it's um, also lipopolysaccharides, those LPSs that maybe people are more familiar with that. Mm -hmm. So what happens is bacteria or, you know, bugs in our gut, good, bad, what have you, release toxins. And when we have gut hyperpermeability, which can happen when we have stuff going on in the gut, because it creates an environment of inflammation. So the lining of the gut becomes permeable. Those toxins, those endotoxins can escape into the bloodstream, then that causes systemic inflammation, which is inflammation throughout the body. And from there, that triggers immune responses. And so we can end up, this is where like atopic type conditions come from. So, you know, asthma, allergy, So additionally, we always focus on leaky gut and food sensitivities, which is one of the reasons why food is not the root cause of the problem. It's because of that gut hyperpermeability that these food particles are leaking into the bloodstream as well. So and when we eat, like you mentioned, eating alone, just digestion in general, creates more die off of bugs which means more endotoxemia, in particular high fat diets, and there's research on this. Mm. So high fat diets increase endotoxemia. And so when we have leaky gut, this can be happening. And I did just find that H. pylori article. So yeah, so it's titled breastfeeding and helicobacter pylori infection in early childhood, a continuing dilemma. So this was published in the Iranian Journal of Pediatrics in 2014. So yeah, so the conclusion here, we concluded a study to evaluate the effects of breastfeeding on H. pylori. They're conflicting results. However, it appears that it is possible for H. pylori to get into the breast milk and be transferred to the little one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And typical to research. We don't have enough yet. And but we think this is possible. Right. But it's <laughs> exactly. good. You, you got to start somewhere. Right. So right. I appreciate it. And it's not easy. Sometimes we like to complain that there's not enough research, but like I am working on possibly doing some research with a colleague right now. And it's sort of like, oh, <laughs> we got it. There's uh-huh. there's a lot of expense here. So anyway, so we were talking about food in a little bit there. And so I think we know everyone knows this, but Yes, you do get antigens from food through breast milk as well. But I think what's important, and I actually, I feel like I spend a lot of time on this when I'm working with families, because guess what? When you have a child for a client, you now have two to three clients, because you have the child, the mom who may have her own emotional whatever from what's going on, right? Like there's many reasons for that and maybe dad. So I think it's important to talk about the guilt that parents and especially moms have when their little ones have skin rashes. What would you say about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is really, I think, something important to address. And I can just hear it In mom's voice and dad's voice, I can see it in their faces, you know, when we're talking about what's happening and just to listen to them go through the laundry list of potential things that they've done wrong. You know, I had a mom that was told by their allergist that she caused their little one's dairy allergy because they restricted it from her diet. The mom was literally told that it was her fault. And all I can say is just I want moms and dads and families to know this, that I have seen babies born C-section that are formula fed that have skin rashes. And I yes. see just as many vaginally born yes. breastfed babies with skin rashes as well. Yes. So, right? And parents, it's not your fault. I've mm-hmm. seen all of these different combinations of factors. And of course, it's beyond frustrating because you feel like you're doing everything right, but your little one is still struggling. And it's not your fault that your little one has skin rashes. There's a deeper root cause. And that root cause is something that needs to be explained. Forward.
0: And if we just kind of shift, no one wants to talk like this when they're sleep-deprived and it kind of sucks and their child is miserable, but... Mm -hmm. You know, it's a fire alarm on the outside. So as much as I hated my eczema journey, I can be thankful for it. You can be thankful for it when you overcome it. You really hate Mm -hmm. it in the moment, but you can be thankful for it later about what you experienced because really like life isn't easy in so many ways, right? But usually the most challenging things we go through have taught us a lot. And if they haven't quite given their lesson yet, that's okay. So anyway, and Mm -hmm. and the thing is, you don't have to struggle alone. It's okay to reject. If someone says this is your fault, like that's a good time to find a new advocate or a new partner, you know, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And that's it isn't your fault. It's just it's how things are. You're not alone when there's 10 to 20% of other children also going through the same thing. You're actually in very common company. So absolutely about that. Okay, Mm -hmm. so let's talk about what to do about this. So you kind of mentioned this a little bit in your case study before is with the mom was being treated by another practitioner and the child started having their own die-off symptoms, which for I'm curious what that looked like because for me, Mm -hmm. that may look like fatigue, exhaustion. It might look Mm -hmm. like in an unideal situation it might look like a different style of rash. It's kind of like a little bit more systemic and just kind of red and blotchy-ish. What are some of the die-off type symptoms that you might see?
1: Yeah, so this little one in particular definitely was more cranky, more moody. Sleep had gotten even worse, and sleep was already a problem. I think there were some stool changes as well, and definitely some more rashiness than they were typically experiencing. So yeah, I mean, it was kind of right along the lines of what we expect to see with die off reactions, a worsening of symptoms all around. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was a hard time for mom to watch this happening. Yet at the same time, you know, it was a good way to start addressing things in the little one. Again, I wasn't mom's practitioner. But as this was happening, I did advise her to talk to her practitioner. About it because what we want to do in that case, we really shouldn't be having die off symptoms are common, you know, when we're addressing health concerns the way that we do. And what we need to be doing when those happen is slow down, you know, focus on detoxification, supporting the body's natural detoxification mechanisms and slow down the protocol. And so that's what we need to do in those cases.
0: So, what would you recommend if let's separate to two groups? What do you Mm -hmm. think pregnant moms can do with? Skin rashes in their baby? Mm-hmm. And what can nursing moms do if they or their baby have skin rashes?
1: Okay. So, well, pregnant moms, so if pregnant moms have skin rashes themselves, number one, let's start with those main trigger foods and take those out of their diet. Pregnancy is not a time to start taking different supplements. There are some, like a probiotic, for example, is something that somebody who's pregnant can take. It's very case specific, so there might be things that we can do, but you know, we do need to start with diet and take those primary trigger foods out of the diet. We can look at endocrine disrupting chemicals, for example, environmental exposures, and take a look at making sure that our food is clean, is organic, grass fed, free range, what have you, avoiding. PBCs and dioxins that are in pesticides. And if you have your own garden, your own lawn, you know, like avoid pesticides there, flame retardants, phytoestrogens, even soy, you know, pesticides again, and BPA. So things found in plastics, parabens, which is found in so many different personal care products and, you know, deodorants and such. So, you know, minimizing toxic exposures and potential trigger to triggers to things I think is really important. You know, also we can do a comprehensive digestive stool tests on mom to find out what's happening in the gut. And so we want to start with these food based interventions while mom is pregnant, if we do find imbalances in there, you know, and something mom can do, like quercetin, for example, is a chemical natural compound found in plant foods that is antioxidant and antihistamine. It's found in broccoli, spinach, kale, apples, blueberries, cherries. So, you know, mom can eat more of these foods as well. There is a study. So this was a study from 2017. And it's titled up Date, can breastfeeding and maternal diet prevent atopic dermatitis? So this study found that a maternal diet that was rich in fruits and vegetables and fish and vitamin D actually was associated with a lower risk of eczema in children, but that can also help mom, you know, while you're pregnant. So we want to think, you know, anti-inflammatory and making sure we're getting nutrients in that support the body and the way it is supposed to function and including building and repairing healthy skin. And then there are also foods that have antimicrobial properties that can be helpful. So like if mom, you know, we find that she does have gut dysbiosis, which is, you know, abnormal gut bacteria, something happening in there and she's pregnant, you know, just eating different herbs and spices, like actual herbs and spices, maybe a little bit of coconut oil, garlic and, you know, raw honey. Honey can be antimicrobial. So increasing intake of foods like that can be helpful as well.
0: Yeah, great points. Mm -hmm. It's really a big list even when of safe options. So how about about nursing Mm -hmm. moms? What do you think about nursing moms and what they should do? And then also what supplements, if any, are best for Mm -hmm. eczema and babies? Okay. So, well, with nursing
1: moms, similar, you know, again, we do want to start with the diet and we can add in those quercetin-rich foods that are natural antihistamines and anti-inflammatory. We can add in those healthful foods, also anti-inflammatory, those antimicrobial foods. And when nutrition's not enough, then we really can see what's happening inside mom and again, use that comprehensive digestive stool test. And so, as I mentioned, the example of the family that I was working with where the little one got die off from what, The mom's protocol was there is a lot that we can do with a nursing mom and getting her on a protocol because there are certain supplements that are okay for nursing and for really little ones. So we can use those for mom and for the little one. And it's really case by case. I really don't have like, okay, at this age, I'm just going to focus on mom or I'm just going to focus on baby. I mean, generally, I would say if a kid is, you know, two years and up, what we're looking at is really a mature gut microbiome, at least for the most part. So we can focus on the kid's protocol for the child, whereas less than two years old and if breastfed. And again, it really just depends. Like I look at how much is the child breastfed versus eating solids. So what's going on there and how much exposure they have to what's happening in mom. And then for really little ones, I mean, I've had a, a number of them that are just a few months old. And in those, you know, absolutely, I'm going to look at mom first. But yeah, it really is case by case.
0: Yeah. Which is mm-hmm. easy to do when you're one on one with someone when it, the ages yeah. very, you know, the nice thing is about kids that are young is that there's a short history here. <laughs> And so it's easy to go through the entire history with a fine tooth comb and find exactly Mm -hmm. where things started to present and how they make sense. And really, just that alone is so helpful for Mm -hmm. even mom, like if I could give you some advice to start today, like sit down and assess your own history. When did this pop up? If you haven't thought about that yet, you may have some major aha moments.
1: I think that's really important. I'm talking to a family the end of this week for the first time, they filled out my intake questionnaires, all of that. And I one of the things that is part of my intake questionnaire is a timeline that's generated. So we get to see the person's history. So their health, like where they are today mapped against events in their life. This little one is about six or seven years old. So we do have a little bit of a history. And one of the first things on that timeline is mold exposure. And so I haven't talked to the family about this yet, but I always find that fascinating, you know, and, and we're talking a lot about the gut and what's happening in the gut microbiome. But it's very possible that there are some environmental exposures that are playing a significant role as well. And, you know, this is why I think it's important to really resolve what's happening with your skin. It is an inside job. And the gut is a primary root cause of the problem. But there are other issues as well that can be happening at the same time compounding the issue. And the way I look at it as well is that, you know, we mentioned 70 to 80% of your immune systems located in your gut microbiome. And so if you have problems there, it's going to weaken your immune system overall, which means that anything that you come in contact with has more of a chance to trigger something. So, you know, again, I feel like we go back and look at the gut, you know, regardless, because skin is a gut issue. But at the same time, we do look for those other factors, you know, whether it's mold or food allergies. So we've got your IgE reactions, you know, which can be those anaphylactic life threatening ones. So things like that, that we need to look out for in addition to exploring what's happening in the gut.
0: Sometimes I like to say, I don't know how these unicorns kind of find us. But it. The majority of people that I've worked with, they're often aware of what's going on. Yeah. But if someone yeah. is not very aware or not in tune of what's going on, or does not really see those doesn't really see how some of those things relate, it just might mean that it's going to take a little longer because the person on the other end is the detective like you live with this person. And so when you're able to relay important information, because you see it as important, it's going to yeah. accelerate your speed. And that's okay, if someone's not to that point. But I want to bring that in there. Because just being yeah. aware of what's going on <laughs> significantly accelerates improvement. I
1: you know, I agree. And it's so interesting, because I have so many moms and dads, you know, for that matter, that, you know, will give me information. And then they, you know, sort of do that. Oh, my gosh, I'm sorry, this is probably too much. And my no. MO <laughs> is it's never too much information. I don't care how unimportant you think it might yeah. be. You don't know, you, you never know what this could mean. Yeah. So I ask for anything and everything, you know, if somebody just has a random thought, you know, something popped up, let me know, it might mean something. Yeah. And then I do find over time, you know, you get these like a string of just these little random pieces of information, and then you start looking at them together, and you start connecting the dots and other things start to make a lot of sense. Yeah, so it's really interesting. There's a lot of detective work that's involved. And it's really a collaborative process. It's a team effort. So you know, I I look at my clients as my team members, we're doing this together. And it it does it takes a village. (laughs) It it really does. Yeah, the more
0: responsibility in like a positive way, don't make it feel Mm -hmm. like it's all on your shoulders. It just helps. But I love that you said that, because that's actually my favorite part of everything is the detective work and finding the gray area that someone else missed. And it's funny how, as you sort of stated, that how these things sort of start to represent themselves in case after case after case. And I'm like, oh, I'm pretty sure this is related to this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's not that's right. like, not really well-recognized outside of this. Like, for example, yeah. where does this skin issue present? I'm like, well, I have some hypotheses about where your skin issue presents related to like what the root cause may or may not be or how mm-hmm. it looks. And that's the challenging thing. You're working with more skin issues. Isn't, I'm usually looking at eczema typically mm-hmm. kind of depends. And we're using that one definition to characterize actually many conditions, right? Like there are uh-huh. many subconditions under that, which is why I think well, that's one of the challenges with research historically is that we're not getting specific enough. And so we're kind of getting like mixed results. But if we would put more subtypes together, <laughs> we could uh-huh. make probably make a little more progress as well. And that will come, but it will take a long, long, long time for it to come yeah. to all amount. So, Yeah, absolutely. But I I think that's
1: an interesting point, because one of the first questions I ask folks when I start working with them is, do you have any official diagnoses? You know, did your doctor diagnose you with anything? And I always like to understand that information, because it does start pointing you in the right direction. And then from you know, undertaking a functional approach to it, we can look at whatever that diagnosis is, and then start tracing back. You know, we look backwards for those root causes and, and why that's happening. So I do find it helpful to understand if there's a diagnosis of some sort. But you're right. Like when I'm looking at skin rashes, a skin rash has roots in the gut, and so. I don't wanna say it doesn't matter what skin condition, but generally if somebody comes to me with skin complaints, Mm -hmm. I'm gonna look at their gut. So it is sort of grouped a little bit into different categories. But then of course, you know, when you're looking at interventions for whatever the skin rash, for example, is, those might be a little bit different depending on what they are. Like I might do different things topically for eczema that I would Mm -hmm. for psoriasis or something that is more yeast-based. You might do something a little bit different. But internally when you're looking at the gut, it's like you take that look at the gut And then I should mention this, too. It's so many parents. They've tried everything. They've tried all these online protocols, different programs. I talked to somebody this morning that, you know, was trying a protocol from a practitioner. And the problem is that, you know, often we're looking for these one off things that we find online. You know, totally good intentioned, of course. Mm -hmm. But we're looking at these programs that aren't specific to what's happening with you, with your child. I have not had two clients ever with the exact same protocol. Of course, there are certain different nutrition recommendations or supplement recommendations that I make or sort of my general recommendation list, but it has not been the exact same for any two people that I have mm-hmm. ever worked with. There's always something just a little bit different. And this is why, you know, that customized approach works a lot better than something that you find online because it's actually customized for what's happening with your body. So taking that deeper look and customizing it to your biochemistry, to your gut microbiome, to whatever we're looking at for your root causes, like your root causes are going to be a little bit different than somebody else's. Everybody has a unique gut microbiome. It's as unique as your fingerprint. So we just need to take the individual personalized approach in order to resolve these types of issues.
0: I think that's a great point, and I wanted to say that although – Like, I completely echo what you say there. And the other tricky thing is that people will continue to try these protocols, but the length of time it might take for one person to see some results from something is going to be different than the other person, like, which is essentially the same version of what you just said. But okay, for example, I had this boy this morning, and he's a pretty severe case, a little bit older, kind of has, you know, has a history of a lot of emergency room visits due to significant allergic reactions. That's a very different case than someone who's two who has eczema in their, you know, elbow and knees, and that tells me mm-hmm. we're gonna have to be a lot more patient, right? When you're more severe, you're mm-hmm. gonna need to be a little bit more patient, not complacent, but mm-hmm. more patient and realistic. For hey, where you're at is gonna take a little bit longer to get things even going because you're starting mm-hmm. at maybe a lower rung on the ladder. So, yeah, absolutely. That brings me to another point. And I just want to comment. I'm glad you mentioned some topical stuff Mm -hmm. because I think that's one of the pros and cons, right, to skin issues is that you're not only dealing with what's on the inside like many other conditions, you're dealing with what's on the outside, too. And it matters because there's a skin microbiome. I mean, dermatologists, that's their game, right, as the external Uh skin microbiome and and other stuff. So I think we should address the topicals. And that's where usually people are looking anyway. So I also think that it's Mm -hmm. important to provide because you can speed up how skin heals, with offering some support topically. So Mm -hmm.
1: yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I I find that interesting too, because and again, everybody is different here as well. Like generally, I recommend not using coconut oil on the skin, because it's extremely antimicrobial, and it disrupts the skin microbiome. So we've got like you mentioned, all this, you know, healthy, hopefully healthy bacteria that lives on our skin, and it protects our skin barrier. And so when that microbiome gets out of balance, the barrier can break down, we lose moisture, and we're more prone to skin rashes like eczema, for example. So what happens though, like a lot of people with eczema tend to have higher colonization of staph on the skin. It just I don't know exactly why, but that's a thing. And so like I recommend not using coconut oil, but a lot of people that use coconut oil do find it helpful. And again, it's because it has those antimicrobial properties. Mm-hmm. So that's just an example, like different things work for different people. You know, I also recommend against using essential oils on the skin and essential oils are in so many different products that are marketed for kids, for skin rashes. And it's just something to be careful with. You know, I find that so many people, because eczema is classified as, is an atopic condition along with allergies and asthma. And so when we're talking about essential oils and the plants that they come from, a lot of people that are sensitive that have allergies can have reactions to a lot of these essential oils. You know, for example, like lavender is in so many different things and it's also a common allergen. So it's just something to look out for. Shea butter, which is a fantastic moisturizer. I use it, but it's a nut. So if somebody has nut allergies, it can be making things worse. So yeah, so I think it really is important to take into account the skin microbiome. And you just have to be careful. And again, take that individual approach to see what works for you.
0: Yeah. And some people would say that they improved their eczema from essential oils. But I want to piggyback on something you said that we haven't talked about and we don't need to talk about in depth. But I used to burn myself once a year with essential oils, (laughs) where I used to have for a very short time, I used steroid cream on my chest in high school. And the skin there is so thin. And the reminder is that essential oils burn me. Mm-hmm. And so I have a week. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's a different kind. of. It's like a burned rash. You know, it's like, ouch. yeah, it's just like an ouch type thing that happens. And so I finally like learned after three or four years. like, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna not use that anymore. <laughs> it's not one of those things like when that one time a year where you need some eucalyptus or whatever and then you put it on and you're like, yep, oops.
1: You're yeah. like, oop, forgot Not, about that. Yeah, I forgot, know. I forgot that about that
0: that thing where yeah. I where I have that thin skin there. So it's yeah. something to think about because most people who have had a skin issue have probably used steroids at some point, and it's just a side effect. It just thins the skin, so it is what it is. Okay. That you just have to be careful with what you put on. So yeah, you know, another thing I should mention
1: too because this came up with a client I was working with, and you know they were using something on the skin for their little one, and it seemed to be helping. I don't remember everything that was in the product, but it had red clover in it, mm. and I noticed that. Red clover is in a lot of different products for eczema, and if you look it up, it's indicated for you know helping with skin inflammation. But it's also indicated for use in menopausal women because it increases estrogen levels. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like okay, I don't think that's something you really want to be putting on your little one. You know, mm-hmm. you don't really want to raise estrogen levels in your little one. So again, it's about reading labels and paying attention to what's in these things and really connecting the dots. And it's a challenge; it is hard to do, but But, you know, and working with somebody that can help you connect those dots can be really, really helpful.
0: Right. So you're not expected to be your own case manager, because I think that becomes pretty stressful on people, which flare skin issues. (laughs) Right, Um, exactly. (laughs) So I think these last couple of questions are great. How do we be realistic, right? How long does it really take to resolve skin rashes? What can you expect during that process? Mm. But also, and I think this is a perfect question that ties with it. Why don't more providers address skin issues?
1: Okay, we'll start with that last one, because I don't know. I think that it's one of the most challenging aspects of health to address. I think it's one that takes probably the longest or almost the longest comparatively. For example, like, and so if we're talking about, you know, rebuilding the gut in order to heal the skin, you know, a normal healthy gut, for example, the aligning is built every two to three weeks but in somebody that has autoimmunity or food sensitivities or other inflammatory health problems like skin conditions, it can be anywhere like 12 weeks or more. And I find that it takes sometimes six months, a year, over a year to actually get true resolution. Because, you know, if you're thinking about it, we want to resolve these from the root cause, especially if it's something that hasn't resolved by some of those, whatever you find out there, you take some, a few foods out of your diet, you take the main triggers out, that doesn't help. You use a good moisturizer, that doesn't help. You know, something, deeper is going on. And if we're talking about finding that these issues in the gut and the gut hyperpermeability, which is an underlying issue with eczema, for example, first, in order to heal the gut, not only do we need to address what's happening in there, we have to address those things that are triggering it, that are keeping that inflammation going. And so this is why it can take even longer because those triggers are really hard to find. It can be anything. I have this laundry list, you know, after working with people for so long, I just have a list of things that, you know, I start to check off as I'm talking to people, you know, we start with the basics, like some of the things that we're talking about. And we can go all the way down to like fluorine, you know, stuff in the water, like, do you have hard hmm. water? Do you have soft water? Do you have an air purifier in your house? Have you ever been exposed? We mentioned mold, you know, what kind of trees and grasses are around your house, so hmm. it, it can go really deep. And so it can take a long time to resolve. And so what's important, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day, and they've been on other protocols for, you know, their little one has for, eczema. And one of the questions I asked, I'm like, okay, well, how long were you on these protocols? And the mom said a month. And so, you know, my reaction to that is a month really isn't long enough to address longstanding issues. And this little one was already eight or nine years old, had skin rashes since infancy. So it does take a longer period of time. So consistency, persistence, and patience are really important with these protocols in order to make a difference. And it's not like suddenly you're going to wake up in the morning and your skin rashes are going to be gone. What I tend to see is that flares become fewer and farther between And then when they do happen, they're not as severe and they don't last as long. So one mom actually a couple weeks ago and this little girl we've been working together for a while we're coming up to, I think it's about nine months. And it's exactly that kind of trajectory that I just described. So flares are fewer and farther between. Then she got a really severe one and I got an email from mom saying she's really flaring. And I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, you know, what can possibly still be triggering? We've been working on her gut and found lots of imbalances in there. So we're working through that. And then like two days later, I got another email And mom was like, okay, I'm a believer because this was, you know, the flare was bad, not as bad as when we started, but it was one of the worst ones she's had, but it's almost gone already. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's typically what I see in terms of, you know, how the cases progress
0: so great to go over that because I think people like sometimes when parents are desperate or they're looking at you with those eyes are like, I remember this couple and like the mom, she got it. But dad was like, just tell me that this will heal my daughter's eczema. Like, and I'm like, yeah, I mean, like you're doing all the right things. You have no reason to think that it won't, but like sometimes wanting these ultimatums or feeling like they're ultra short. I mean, I'm more about, I want you to understand exactly how this works so Mm -hmm. you can continue implementing it because my approach and everyone's a little bit different, but I want really get someone like a beautiful foundation and get them rolling and then give them the tools to kind of continue it on their own. And then sometimes yes. and so I'm looking for a certain amount of improvement in that time. But then I love getting that email six and nine months later, where it's like, oh my gosh, like finally everything is gone. Like, yeah. you know, because it's so hard to sometimes stay positive. And so I just really appreciate that you gave some realistic timelines because healing mm-hmm. skin is not short term. And as you said, you're looking for other markers. I love the markers you said. I'm looking for markers that like, I'm looking for mood to look good and sleep to yes. look good and decrease in itch. Like those are all winning things that we're yes. looking for. So And those tend to happen for
1: one of the first things I see are improvements in sleep, improvements in mood, improvements in behavior. Those tend to happen first Mm -hmm. Uh, At least that's what I've seen. And then skin slowly starts to follow. Also, in a lot of the little ones, and you mentioned this earlier on, and I I did want to comment, I forgot about it, but you were talking about paying attention to what's happening in the stool. And so we can have skin symptoms with no gut symptoms Mm -hmm. whatsoever. And I like to point that out, because like you had mentioned, you know, you're talking to somebody and oh, I have eczema, and you know, that's the only complaint or skin rashes Mm -hmm. of some sort. And you know, here we are, okay, well, we're going to do a stool test. And people are like, well, what are you talking about? So it's that whole explanation of what's happening in the gut. But a lot of little ones, and I think it is kind of hard to tell, especially if the little one is still in diapers and things get mashed in there mm-hmm. anyway. It's like, is this a soft stool? Is mm-hmm. it softer than it should be for a little one? So I think there are a lot of questions around that too. But yeah, so I, I think that's important to notice. Yeah.
0: And I've, you know, sometimes you have to work really wonderfully with the other provider because sometimes there's blood in the stool and you need to make sure that there's not some other significant thing that needs to be mm-hmm. addressed. So anyway, Anyway, lots Mm -hmm. of pieces there. Yes, Jennifer, I loved this conversation. It was so fun for me. I hope it was fun for you too. I hope I believe and I hope that the listeners also really enjoyed it and they can share it with their friends that are dealing with this. And I hope they will find a lot of support and inspiration and great messages in it.
1: Where can people find you? So my website is jennifercarenbrand.com. Karen is spelled a little funny, but you can spell it Pretty much anyway, and it'll come up. But so it's Jennifer, C A R Y N B R A N D.com. Or if you typed in K-A-R-E-N, that'll come up too. I took care of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I figured just in case. Also, Healthy Skin Comes From Within.com will get you to me as well. I'm on Instagram, which is where I do most of my social media. I post something on there every day and I try to give these informative tips and things to try and I talk a lot about the gut microbiome and they get into a lot of detail. I'm a gut microbiome nerd, so I'm always mm-hmm. looking at research to find out like what gut bugs do what and which ones play roles in certain things. So on Instagram, I'm Jennifer Karen Brand. So it's J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R C-A-R-Y-N-B-R-A-N-D.
0: Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on today. I look forward to chatting again. Thank you for having me. This was awesome.